Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and the producer of Krenitsya, The Well, a monthly podcast series about Ukrainians and their interesting activities around the globe. Today is Tuesday, July 23rd, 2019. Our guest for this episode is a British-Ukrainian journalist, Askol Krushelnitsky, who is currently the Washington, D.C. correspondent for the English-language newspaper, The Kiev Post. Welcome, Oskold. How are you? I'm, I'm very well, and it's very nice to be here with you. And thank you so much for agreeing to uh, come on the podcast today. My pleasure. So I'd like to chat with you first a little bit about your uh, educational and professional background. I know that you've been a journalist for 40 years, but when I was looking through your bio up on the KF Post, they mentioned the fact that you received a BA in industrial chemistry. So I guess your career plans were different back then. Um, they were. It was a BSc in industrial chemistry, which I got from City of London University. At school, I'd always loved history and English literature, but my parents, who were refugees, like so many other refugees, wanted me to have a solid career. So that meant like they, they, they would have preferred me to be a doctor, a lawyer, a scientist. Um, rather than uh, what's history or literature going to get to me. But when I did chemistry at, at university, I, I found that I, I wasn't a natural talent at it. I'd been okay at school. And I got my BSc. I, I worked for a year as an industrial chemist for Unilever. And I, that cemented the fact that um, this was not a career for me and somebody told me about a journalism course that had become available in in britain where there hadn't been any undergraduate journalism courses at all but this was a course for postgraduates of any discipline and i got onto that course and i was sort of like retrained like an electrician that wants to become a carpenter i guess in the minds of uh, future employers who couldn't imagine that a, uh, an industrial chemist could um, string a sentence together. And um, I got my first job. I was offered a job as, almost as soon as I um, completed my last exams in the journalism course. And what year was that? That was in 1978. So I got my first job, and that was in a London um, newspaper in 1978, October. And what was the newspaper? Um, it was called the South London Press. In fact, it still exists. Um, as the name implies, it covered South London, which is divided into two. London is divided into two by the Thames River. And um, it was re regarded as an excellent training place for journalists who would go on to more national media. So there are lots of people that went on to the national newspapers or onto TV from there. But as I joined later than many of the other people on the South London press, I saw an opportunity in kind of cutting the process short by the, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in Christmas on Christmas Day, 1979. And I decided that I would go to Afghanistan as a as a freelancer um, for a large British newspaper, the Sunday Telegraph. Um, and I, so I went there in June 1980. 
I went into to, with the um, Mujahideen who were on, who were our friends at the time, and um, that was the first of many trips throughout the 1980s that I went with the Mujahideen um, fighting the um, the Soviet forces, and um, that did kind of shorten the process of my getting from a local newspaper to a national newspaper. Eskold, can we turn for a moment to your family history? I reread the beginning chapters of your 2006 book, An Orange Revolution, and I was fascinated about your family and how they came to the UK from Ukraine. So can you talk a little bit about that? I think that their story is typical of people that came to the UK of Ukrainian origin. And um, in some ways, in many ways, typical of the Ukrainian diaspora um, that came here um, after the Second World War. My mother and her parents were taken as, uh, by the Germans as forced labor. Um, they came from the ivano frankivsk area, which was at that time called Stanislavio. And uh, they, after the war, ended up in an American and British-controlled sector of Germany. And like tens of thousands of other people of Ukrainian origin, they spent a few years in um, DEP camps, displaced persons camps, and then they elected to which countries they would go. My parents wanted to go to Canada, but my grandmother failed a heart health check, and so they had to go to Britain, even though my granny died at a ripe old age, 85. My father was in the Ukrainian-German armed division, Holochana, um, the Galicia division in, in German. And they were in German uniform, but of course most people know that they weren't fighting for Germany. They entered the, those forces because they wanted to fight against the Soviet army, which was returning to Western Ukraine, where most of them were enlisted from. And they'd had a horrible experience the first time the Soviets were there with thousands of people executed, hundreds of thousands of people sent to the east, to Siberia, most of them, many of them never returned. So he was in the Ukrainian Holochina, they surrendered at the end of the war to American and British forces, and they were taken to Italy, to a place called Rimini, where they were kept in, as prisoners of war until 1947. But it wasn't like in the movies. They had lots of freedom. And they weren't actually kept captive. They did live in camps. They had schools. They had churches. And uh, lots of them actually married Italian women. But in 1947, Britain proposed that they all came over to Britain to replenish labor forces, men who'd been killed during the war. And that's what they, most of them did, including my, my father. And they were brought over. They worked um, principally in coal mines, in the textile industry, and farming. And uh, my father was in a textile factory in a place called Bradford in the north of England. And he met my mother, who also settled there. Um, he was good at languages, and he became the editor of the only Ukrainian newspaper in the UK, Dumka is called the thought, and they moved to London. 
I, I should say that before the Second World War, there was no diaspora, Ukrainian diaspora, organized in, in Britain. And the first buildings were, in fact, bought by Canadian and American soldiers of Ukrainian origin who were mustering in Britain for the Normandy invasion. And they got to know about each other and had a social um, club. And that building, which they bought during the war in London, became the the, the basis of the whole of the Ukrainian diaspora, which came after them, and which was never more than 40,000 strong, but was very well organized and very patriotic and wanted to help Ukraine. So how was it, what was it like growing up in the uh, Ukrainian diaspora community in the UK? My, because my father was working for the Ukrainian community, he and some other people who were, um, excuse me, working also for the Ukrainian community, lived in a building that had been bought by the Ukrainian diaspora, another one, not the one bought by the Canadian and American soldiers. And so my first years, I was surrounded by other kids that spoke Ukrainian, um, because that was our first language. And I went to shopping every few days with my grandmother, and who was looking after me whilst my mother worked. And, and we went principally to two shops. Both of them were owned by German speakers, a Viennese Jewish bakery and a German butcher. And my grandmother, who spoke fluent German, uh, would talk to them in German. So I knew there was another language, but I never suspected it was English until I went to school when I was five years old, which is when we start in, in the UK. So that was curious, but kids learn, pick up languages very fast, and by seven I was speaking fluent English, but I had a strong Ukrainian accent until I was about 10 or 11. And then my life was divided between Ukrainian activities. My father and my mother were both involved in the Ukrainian community quite deeply. So in my, my mother was a plastunka, a scout, a member of the Ukrainian scouts. My father was in the Ukrainian Youth Organization Association. So in Ukrainian life, I was a member of SUM, the Ukrainian Youth Association. And I played in a Ukrainian orchestra. And I, I tried to dance. I had no voice for singing. But I was active as I grew up in the student movement. And so Ukrainian activities were always definitely part of my life. And I also had my education was in, in, in English and um, British. I, I was in the British scouting movement. I played in a school orchestra violin. In the Ukrainian orchestra, I played mandolin, which is strung the same way, except you have two strings. So I had a kind of parallel life or a unified life because they didn't really clash. And the values that we were taught that needed to be how the ones that guided your life were the same, whether they were Ukrainian or in English values that were taught us. So now I'd like to turn back to your journalism career. And I understand that in the 1990s, you reported on the fall of communism. And then eventually from 1997 through 2011, you were actually a correspondent in Moscow. I wasn't a correspondent for so many years, thank God. But I, what, what happened was that I'd been a South Asia correspondent for the Sunday Times of the UK, so I was based in India, 
and I was reporting on India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka. But then in 1989, just a few months before the Berlin Wall fell in November of that year, I came back to Europe and I was and, and uh, I was offered a job as the East European editor of a newspaper. It was exactly the right time to watch the fall of the wall, which I actually witnessed by a fluke because I was on a story in Poland and then people heard that something might have been going on. And so I was very privileged, I feel, to see that historic event. And then I covered communism fell in the satellite countries of Central Europe. And then when the process took hold in the, in the Soviet um, Union with the Baltic countries, first of all, being in the lead uh, to break away from Moscow's orbit. And then and also I was all the time following keenly events in, in Ukraine because um, they, they were obviously very close to my heart. And I had to go to Moscow frequently, and I was I was based in Moscow for two spells. The last one of which was in '97 and '98. Um, I um, I was covering the whole of the former Soviet Union from Moscow, which unfortunately is still a practice employed by many Western media who don't seem to psychologically accept that Moscow isn't the only place in that area, the only important place in that region. But it was a fascinating time to watch this this process. And of course, in Ukraine, that process was not carried out in one fell swoop, like, or in a short period of time, say, such as in Poland, where they decommunized the system. And uh, even though there was corruption, they set their course in a very determined fashion to match European Union standards and their now thriving economy. They were helped by the European Union, which Ukraine um, had encouragement from the European Union, but certainly didn't have the promise of entry if it fulfilled all the criteria and certainly didn't have all the billions of dollars that were thrown, thrown at the Poles and other former communist states so they could refashion themselves in a more Western manner. Pascal, I understand. So now you are in Washington, D.C. with your wife, Irina, and you are the Washington correspondent for the Cave Post. That's correct. And in fact, in 1998, for some time, I was the editor-in-chief of the Cave Post because um, I'd met my wife. She didn't want to live in Moscow, neither did I. So, and, and she was working at Radio Free Europe, Ukrainian service in Kiev, and so I moved to Kiev and had to leave my my staff job for the newspaper I was with in, in Moscow. But at the same time, by coincidence, the job of editor-in-chief of the Kiev Post popped up. I took that for a while, and then I returned. I did other things, worked mostly as a freelancer, British and American publications and, and have a small business intelligence agency of my own company, not agency. Um, and I always gave pieces for free to the Cave Post. And then a year ago, it was bought by a new owner, injected some money. And the editor of the Cave Post asked me whether I'd be their American 
already am. He said, no, Ascot, we can pay you. And I said, well, why not? So it's very pleasant to be doing what I've always done, except getting paid for it a bit. And what I find interesting with your pieces, they're not focusing so much on politics or the economy. They seem to be focusing on the Ukrainian diaspora in the United States. Well, a mix. I mean, I do have to, and, and I want to write about um, political developments, and there are many political intersections between American politics and Ukrainian politics, some of them good, uh, with America giving um, a lot of aid, as does Canada and other Western countries. But America is vital to Ukraine's existence, really, since um, the Russian invasion of 2014. But I'm also trying to give the readership, and many of them are Ukrainians who speak very good English now in Ukraine, but also lots of expats, about some of the remarkable people who built, made sure that a Ukrainian diaspora thrived here in Canada, passed on the torch, so to speak, of uh, freedom and enlightenment and knowledge and respect and admiration and affection for Ukraine to new generations who have contributed to contemporary Ukraine's well-being. There's a long way to go. But some of these people are fascinating, very accomplished, and I think that Ukrainians like to find out and sometimes surprised to find out that people that may have been in, in the U.S. or Canada for their families may have been here for several generations, over a hundred years, but that they still retain an affection for Ukraine. And many of these Ukrainians come from the older ones were brought up in a communist atmosphere where Ukrainian patriotism was frowned upon and, and everything good came from Moscow and Ukrainians were kind of second racers. And I think that it imbues people with a sense of pride and is eye-opening to lots of Ukrainian readers that some of the most accomplished people in the countries like the U.S. and Canada and elsewhere where Ukrainians settle are people like them from the same gene pool. Interesting. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I did want to ask you one last question. Go ahead. Do you think there'll be another book in your future? I certainly hope so. And in fact, I'm preparing a proposal right now, which is which will deal with the events from the fall of 2013, which is the beginning of the Maidan or the mass demonstrations. And then we'll describe how that was transformed into a violent and bloody and revolution because of the actions, which are quite murderous, as we know, of the uh, regime. And then how that turned into a war with Moscow thinking that um, Ukraine was vulnerable and this was the time to really undermine this very irritating for them Ukrainian sovereign, freedom-loving country. So I, I was there for the Maidan, I was there for the revolution. I, I go um, to cover at least once or twice a year. I go to the front lines now, but in 2014-15, I was there a lot with the people who saved Ukraine from occupation, and I would like to put this down on paper. That's great. I think we all will look forward to seeing that in print. Thank you. Oskold, I want to thank you so much for coming on Krenitsia today. Well, it's 
been great talking to you. And I, I hope that we keep in touch. And maybe if this book is published, you'll want to interview me again. Absolutely. This is Mike Burek, your host and the producer of Knedizia, The Well, a monthly podcast series about Ukrainians and their interesting activities around the globe. I've been speaking today with Askold Krushelnitsky, who is the U.S. correspondent currently for the KF Post. And until next time, that's all for now.